Hey, good morning. Thank you for joining us for a recent sermon from Harvest Baptist Church. I'm Mark Likens. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. We're a Bible-believing, gospel-centered, grace-driven church family right here in Atrona Heights, Pennsylvania. And if you'd like to learn more about our ministry, you can visit us on Facebook or at harvestbaptist.info. Now, I hope you enjoyed today's sermon. It's my prayer that this will encourage and equip you in your relationship with God. Join with me if you would. Look at verse number one. You're going to start to see Boaz preparing for court. So verse number one, Boaz went up to the gate and he sat him down there. Now remember, uh, this was the night before. This was winnowing barley time. What that means is you planted your crops, uh, you made sure they were watered, the crops grew, then you reaped the crops, and then there was about a three-day period where you were going to separate the wheat from the chaff, where you were going to get your yield and your produce for the year. It was three days that was a lot of work. And this was so important that you worked basically around the clock. You worked, you ate, you slept there, and you, and you woke up right away, and you went right back to work again, and you even wanted to protect this asset. So it's, it's right in the middle of this little few day of period of time. And this is important to note that Boaz... The man has so much work to do that he's packing his lunch and a pillow, and he's sleeping on the floor of the office because he's just going to get right back up and do it again. That this man stops that and says, you know what? Business isn't important right now. My bride's important. I'm not that interested in retail right now. I'm interested in Ruth. This shows you the fact that he would do this on this day, how significant and monumental this is for him, that he would give this such high priority that he wants to get it done and he wants to get it done right away so uh, middle of verse one behold the kinsmen of whom boaz spake came by unto whom he said and i love the the king james language here ho such a one turn aside and sit down here and he turned aside and he sat down so what he's saying is like hey you buddy come here sit down i want to talk to you that's what he's saying and then verse number two he took 10 men of the elders of the city and he said sit you down here and they sat down so here comes this nameless, a nearer kinsman, someone who is a closer relative to Ruth uh, than Boaz is. And he says, hey, I knew I'd find you here. Come here, sit down. And hey, I, I got a quorum of elders here. Uh, let's get them. Hey, sit down. And even this speaks into the character of Boaz. If Boaz was a man who did not have a good reputation, who did not have a good character, it's highly unlikely that they would have paid him mind. When he said, hey, you, come here, sit down. They probably said, who are you, you little rascal? Like, get out of here, buddy. I'm, 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 not, I'm not sitting down with you. I'm not paying you any attention. But these men will say, okay, whatever this is, this must be important. Boaz wants to talk with us. So here they go. They sit down. Verse number three, here's the courtroom proceedings. Verses three, four, five, six, seven, and eight. And he said unto the kinsmen, Naomi, that has come again out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech's, and I thought to advertise thee, or I, I thought to get your attention. I wanted to make you aware, because you're next in line, that this land is up for grabs. So, verse number four, buy it. Before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. I got the people here to be witnesses. We can notarize this right now. Uh, we can get this done. The land's for sale. Do you want to buy it? Verse four, if thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. If thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me so I can know. For there is none to redeem it besides thee, and then I'm after thee. So you're the closest blood relative. We don't know the guy's name, Mr. X. You know, you're the closest. You're up. Do you want it or not? And if you do, tell me. And if you don't, tell me that, because I'm next in line. You have the first right of refusal, 
But if you refuse it, then I'm super interested and I want to make this happen. So we got everything we need here. Just, just tell us right now on the spot, do you want this or not? And he said, I'll redeem it. Mr. X said that. I do want it. I've, it's, it's mine. I've, I want to take this. Verse number five. Then said Boaz, well, what day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. So, he didn't, this guy didn't realize this at first. And Boaz says, all right, surprise. Naomi's land comes with Ruth's hand. These two go together. And if you want the land and you want to be the kinsman redeemer, then we need to save the family. We don't need to leave the girls in the lurch. They should be included in this, and you need to take Ruth as your wife. You need to potentially have offspring and, and keep the name of the family going, and that would be part of this, that Ruth is implicated in any action you may take as the kinsman redeemer. So we need to be considerate of her. In verse number six, the kinsman said, well, I can't redeem it for myself. Lest I mar my own inheritance, redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. So here's how it went. To put it in modern vernacular. I come to one of you and say, hey, I'm putting my house up for the market. You know, it's, it's you know, fair market price. Uh, I'd like to, you're first in line. I'd, I'd like to let you know. You told me you were looking for a house. You want to buy it. What's the price? Where's it at? Yeah, I've been over. Yeah, I do want to buy it. Yeah, let's get it done. Well, just so you know, I'm going to keep living in the basement, and my mother-in-law is going to keep living upstairs. Do you still want to buy it? You know, that's a variable that may change this transaction, right? I may not be that interested any longer. And that's what happens here. He says, you want the land? Uh, yeah, I do want the land. I'd be real interested in that. Well, it comes with a couple gals, you know? It's not just the land, it's the ladies too. And he says, actually, uh, no, second thought, I don't want it. He's saying very clearly, I am just not all that interested because financially, this just doesn't make much sense to me. I'm looking at the assets, I'm running the numbers, I'm, I'm looking at the portfolio, and you know what? Uh, when it was just the land, it seemed like a fiscally sound move. But now that you're telling me that Ruth is involved, uh, I don't think this will enhance my assets. I think it's going to be a drain. I, I think that this will complicate both my life and my bank account. So pass. You can have it. Now, I think there's a lot, of, uh, there's a lot to learn just from even this little snippet. And ultimately, Mr. X makes a fatal mistake. And, and commentators speculate that perhaps they leave this man nameless because the narrator is a couple generations removed from this, and he knows they give it a couple generations, and that dude would have been the great granddaddy of King David. And that those, he's trying to keep the family name from having the reputation sullied even further, because if this guy who looked at it just as dollars and cents and just as a financial transaction, if he would have looked at this as love and legacy, and if he would have known that through Ruth, was going to come King David, and through King David was going to come the Messiah, that he would have been a patriarch of the Messiah, that he would have been mentioned in the genealogies, that he would have been someone that we're still talking about 3,500 years later. If he would have known all this, he, he would slap himself silly and say, what in the world did you do? How did you miss this opportunity? And that they're trying to just keep his name out of it because it's really embarrassing. But we know this much. This man has a lens on this particular transaction of money financial lens the end i crunch the numbers doesn't make sense boaz doesn't have that lens one guy looks at it through a financial lens and boaz says no i'm not really that concerned if i have to give myself i'll be very generous to ruth i'll be very generous to naomi i'm fine with that 
I look at this through love and legacy. I'm not interested in this because it, it adds to my bottom line or somehow there's some financial windfall that's going to follow. I'm interested in this because I love those women and I care about them. The land really doesn't matter all that much to me. I just want to marry Ruth, right? And Boaz gets it. He gets that I cannot view this as a financial transaction exclusively, but there's people behind this. But Mr. X, he completely misses it. So verse 7, he told Boaz, it's yours. This is what Boaz wanted. And here's what happens. Now this was the manner in the former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing. For to confirm all things or to make the transaction valid, to, to make it legal and binding, a man plucked off his shoe and he gave it to his neighbor and this was a testimony in Israel. Therefore, the kinsman said unto Boaz, buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. This is saying, and I love that he put this in here and kind of told us, just kind of the way it was back in the day, that you didn't have a pen and paper there handy. Uh, you didn't have DocuSign and be able to put your e-signature in there. That wasn't the case. You couldn't do that. So the way that you confirmed a transaction is that you would take off your shoe and you would give it to somebody else and people would be there to witness it and to notarize that and then you knew that this transaction was binding. So we today would have maybe the president and then the other leader of that country and another leader of that country to sit down with the press and they'll sign the peace accord. That's how we do it today. We put our signature on it. Verse number nine. Boaz begins to respond to this and he says, unto the elders and all the people, your witnesses this day I've bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malon's of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, this is the first time we know which boy she actually married, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren, and from the gate of his place ye are witnesses this day. What a beautiful testimony. I know that we don't do dowries and we don't speak in, t in terms of purchasing a bride. I understand that our customs are different than that. But this is beautiful. That Mr. X sees her as a problem and Boaz is willing to see her as a princess. And he says loud and bold and unashamed, look, you're the witnesses. That girl is my wife. Uh, she's mine and I'm hers and I want her. And not only that, I want to honor her and I even want to honor her husband. And best we know, Malon wasn't a super honorable guy. We know very little about the man, but what we do know is negative. But Boaz says, you know what? I'm an honorable man, and as an honorable man, I'm going to honor other men. And I understand that she was married to him, and she did care for him, and I want to raise up his legacy, and I want to keep his name going. I, I'm not in this for selfish interest. I want to consider her. I want to put her under my umbrella protection, and I want to scream it from the rooftops that she is mine and my, I am hers. You're the witnesses. Let everybody know. I have my bride and I'm proud of her. Then there is this reaction, this public reaction in the next two verses, verses 11 and 12, that is, I would dare say, more beautiful. Verse number 11, all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. And then they give a, a triple benediction, a threefold prayer for this new family. They say, the Lord make the woman that has come into thine house like Rachel and Leah, which two did build the house of Israel? The, the two women that really got, uh, got this started with the, with the 12 children, the matriarchs of the family. May God bless her and may she be like one of them. And do thou worthily in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. 
And let thy house be like the house of Pharaoh, whom Tamar bare to Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. Now, I'm not going to take the time to go look back at, at Rachel and Leah and, and Tamar and Judah and, and all those stories. But here's what they're saying. They're saying, we love this. And we pray. We pray that God would have his hand on Ruth and that she would be a matriarch and that she would be remembered, that she would be something special in our country, even though she's a foreigner. And we pray for you, Boaz. We pray that the Lord's hand would be on you. We pray that you would be famous in Bethlehem. We pray that you would be a man of valor and a man of wealth and that God would open up the windows of heaven on you. And we even pray the end of it is we pray that you would have seed, that God would, would allow Ruth to be fertile. Presumably, she wanted children when she was with Malon because that would have been very stereotypical to want to have children as quickly as possible. But she hasn't had any children yet. And we're praying that God would open her womb and that he would give children. And we are praying that God would bless her and God would bless you and God would bless your offspring and that your family would just be a memorable family. We love this and we're praying for you and we're alongside you. And you really could at this moment just say, and they live happily ever after. I mean, you, you could conclude it right here on a high note. So practically, what I want you to take away from the story is that there is a beautiful mix all through the book, but even right here in chapter number four, of the providence of God, the planning of man, and also the prayers of the saints. That these three things intermingle with each other in beautiful, profound ways, and they're not meant to be split apart from each other. It's an extremely ordinary book in the sense of there are funerals and there are weddings and there are real estate deals that are happening and being notarized at the court and there are people that are hungry trying to find food and, and there are people that are sleeping. And it's a very ordinary kind of run-of-the-mill day-to-day book. There's never anything miraculous. And you need to know that God sometimes works through a visible hand of miracle. Well, he will interrupt human history and he will do things that are divine and miraculous and unbelievable but ordinarily the day-to-day of our life is not God's visible hand of miracle ordinarily our day-to-day is God's invisible hand of providence that he's just there guiding us and if you've ever read the bible and seen miracles happen and just kind of thought to yourself where's God in my life you know why does he show up why does it why does he do a miracle in my life you know I'd like to have a bush light on fire but not burn up and talk to me one day that'd be really cool right i'd like to have a moses moment where god shows up in a tangible way and says i want to make it so clear of what i want you to do i'm going to write it down on stone and hand it to you like i'd love for that to happen that would be a great day in my life that would just make things really clear you know but that never happens in ruth and odds are that that may not happen in your life either I've even thought to myself sometimes, like, Lord, if you don't do a big miracle, do a little miracle, right? Like, predestine a spot at Walmart for me that every time I show up, it's at the front, and it's just available. And, like, every time I show up, it's just like, there's the front spot, and God has worked on my behalf. Like, do something little for me, you know? But none of that, none of that takes place. No visions, no, no over-spiritualizing things, no miracles happen. It's very ordinary. It's very normal. Even the spotlight of chapter 4, is on a, it's on a real estate deal, right? Why? Because God cares about that stuff. Him putting a spotlight in this is him telling us, I care about your day-to-day. I care about the real estate transactions. I care about your interest rate. I care about you going to work. I care about you getting your car washed. I care about you getting off work and, and, and playing with the kids. I care about you making dinner for the family again. I care, I care about that stuff. This is God taking 
just the day-to-day, ordinary humdrum of these people. And you know what he does? They don't realize that he's doing it, but he attaches eternal significance to it. Because when it's all said and done, this is going to be a story that's talked about for millennia. That David comes through this. Jesus comes through this line. They don't realize that there's eternal significance to what they're doing right now. They have no idea. But God is going to take it and he's going to use it. So never, ever, ever think that your faithfulness or just you going through the motions and trying to love the Lord and trust the Lord and show up and and do what, what God's called you to do, even if it doesn't seem all that special, never think it's not special. Never think God's not in that or that he's left you or that he, is, he doesn't concern himself with that. He does. And there's something to be said for understanding that the providence of God is oftentimes an invisible hand that's working in our lives, and we just stay faithful. But then there's planning on top of that. You find all through the book that there is both long-range and short-range planning presented most specifically by Boaz. You see a little bit from Naomi. who's like, oh, we've got to come up with a plan here. Like, staying in Moab is not a plan. We've got to get back home and figure something out. But Boaz is a man, reminds you, who just came off of a 10-year economic downturn. There was a famine in the land for a decade. Now there's bread in the house. But this is a man who has been able to manage his business well, keep it running, keep the employees employed, because chapter 2 he still has the employees, turn a profit, and even after the famine, have enough money in his pocket to be able to procure the land that's going to cost him a price and be able to support financially Naomi and Ruth, which Mr. X could not do apparently. He is a man who has looked long-term and he has been able to manage things and plan things and, and allocate the resources in such a way where he can still make this happen. But then there's short-range planning. I love verses 1 through 10 for this reason. What you don't find, and I, I would have taken it. If it was what happened, I would have taken it. But I'm glad God gave us the ordinary. Ruth comes to Boaz in chapter 3. says, marry me. He says, Okay. And Boaz does not say, why don't we, you know, stay up all night, let's pray, let's fast for three days, and let's just seek the Lord, and let's just pray and pray and pray. And whenever, whenever we get the sense that the feeling is right, we will float like spiritual butterflies on the wind, and we, God will just direct us. I don't know where Mr. X is or what he's doing, but I trust that the Lord will cross his path with mine, and if he intends for us for this to happen, then he and his providence will make our paths cross. And if he does not intend for it to happen, then he will never make our paths cross. And we will, we will see what will be. We will trust in the sovereignty of God at the end. He doesn't say that. This man has a plan. This man says, you know what? Get some sleep. We're going to need it. And when we wake up, I'm going to go to the gate. I'm going to find him. I'm going tr- to track this dude down. And I'm going to have some witnesses ready and waiting because they're, they're going to step up. And I'm going to get this done today. And when, when the time comes, I'm hoping that I can buy the land and that you can be my wife. And when the time comes, I'm not going to pray and fast about it for 120 days. I'm ready. I will get it done right now. I have the money in my pocket. Let's go. Let's execute. This guy has a plan, right? Is he ceasing to trust in the providence of God? Is, is he operating in such a way where it's just him? No. James 4 tells us not to do this, tells us not to say, oh, today, tomorrow, I'll go, I'll buy, I'll sell, I'll plan, I'll do this. And you don't say if the Lord wills, that you don't include the Lord. But James 4 does not tell us that we can't make any plans. So here's a guy, there's a beautiful mix of I'm going to trust in the Lord, I'm going to let him orchestrate, but at the same time, I am going to not hyper-spiritualize this and act like there's nothing, I have no input, I have no planning, I'm not involved in this. He is. Best we know, Boaz and Mr. X are men of faith. 
But they get the witnesses involved. They get this bad boy notarized. They exchange the shoes. They do all the customs. It's not a handshake deal that, you know what, who knows what happened. He said, she said, this mess that could happen. Planning's apart, right? You have the providence of God. Sure you do. It's clear in Ruth. You have the planning of men. Sure you do. That's clear in Ruth. But you also have prayer. If you track the book of Ruth, there, there are prayers in every single chapter. And what you find is they're all answered. That God delighted in hearing these prayers and answering them. And some of them were big. Naomi told Ruth, Ruth, I'm praying you get a husband. Chapter 1. But don't come back with me. Because if you come back with me, hopeless. Ain't no men going to take you. It's not going to work out. Stay here. Your only prospects are being married or here. And I'm praying that you would be married, but don't come with me. And Ruth says, no, I'm coming with you. And God hears the prayer of Naomi. And he gives Ruth the husband that he had prayed for. Ruth prays in chapter number two and says, I want the Lord to bless me. I want him to show favor. He needs to guide me to the right field so I can find the right place. And sure enough, what does he do? He puts her in Boaz's field. It says in the book, as hap would have it, or as happenstance took place. And, and God answered that prayer, and he put her there. You find here that they're praying that God would bless them, make their name great. Certainly it is. We know that today, that Ruth would be a matriarch that's remembered in the genealogies for years to come. Certainly she is. That she would have offspring. And from her comes Obed. Then comes Jesse. Then comes David. And from David comes Jesus. Like all of these prayers were answered. And you find this beautiful mix of how life is. You pray and you seek the Lord and you ask him for some stuff. You trust in his providence and allow him to guide, but you plan and you work and you, you try to write it in pencil and give him the eraser and say, you can do whatever you want, God. You're God, but I'm, I'm going to try to put the work in and the research in and the due diligence in myself, right? Lastly, there's a spiritual picture. This whole book is meant to be a beautiful picture of Jesus and his church. When you see Boaz over and over and over again, you see Jesus, the groomsman, and when you see Ruth over and over and over again, you see the church as bride. This is in profound ways, but it is most especially, I think, profound in chapter number four. And here's Ruth, this girl who has a past that is, it's not good. She's a foreigner. She's an alien. She is outside the commonwealth of Israel, as Ephesians 2 would put it. She is a woman who uh, lives under a curse, actually, due to the sin of her ancestor, Lot who committed incest and started a whole new nation, and from that God said, know what, nope, you're removed from my people, you're removed from my presence, you, you're outside of my umbrella of spiritual blessings, and I don't want you to be associated with, with the worship in, in my tabernacle or temple. She was shut out by the law. The law excluded her in really profound ways and wouldn't allow her in, and she was helpless, and her future was hopeless. She had nothing to offer, and her future was bleak. Her and Naomi both knew it. And that's why she goes to Boaz and throws herself at his feet and says, like, I'm throwing myself on your mercy. I got nothing here. Help me. Marry me. Then you have Boaz, this redeemer. And the redeemer had to check three boxes. Number one, there was a legal box. He had to be near of kin. He couldn't just be anybody. He had to be near of kin. Number two, there was a wealth box. You had to have the money to redeem. Even if you were near of kin, if you didn't have the money, it was null and void. Number three, you had to be willing. You had to want to do it. Nobody was going to make you or twist your arm or, or, or force you to go redeem somebody else or, or to take them under your protection and under your provision. And he checks all three boxes. And in this little love story, it is all meant to scream to us the big love story of Jesus and his church. Of us, the Gentile bride, 
The people who were aliens, who are outside of the commonwealth of Israel, who live under a curse due to the sin of our patriarch Adam, the one who sinned and now we inherit the sin nature, we inherit that curse. We are excluded by the law. The law rules us out from the presence and the holiness of God that we sin and we're guilty and we fall short of the glory of God. People that are hopeless, we have nothing to offer ourselves and our future is bleak without a redeemer. But here comes Jesus onto the scene to be the redeemer, right? To check all the boxes and to say, legally, I will be your kinsman. I'm not going to read it for sake of time, but if you look in Hebrews 2, it tells us that just like we were flesh, God became flesh so that he could be near to us or our, our kinsman, as it were, and he could actually die for us in the flesh and he would eliminate the works of the devil and he would provide peace for us the people who have fear of our future not knowing what's going to await us or knowing worse yet knowing and being scared of what awaits us that Jesus comes to in the flesh the incarnation to actually redeem us and deliver us so he could be our near kinsman you find that Jesus is the one who's lavishly wealthy who has all of the riches, we're told that we're saved and that we're redeemed by his blood that was precious, that was spotless, that was better than corruptible things like silver and gold, and that all of our salvation is according to his riches and grace. We know that Jesus is the one who's lovingly willing. Yes, he took on flesh, and yes, he could redeem us, but he was willing to do it. He commended his love toward us, and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. He proved his love. He demonstrated it. He said very clearly that no man takes my life from me. I lay down my own life of my own accord. The good shepherd will lay down his life for the, for the sheep. This is willing. I'm putting myself on the line. Why? To redeem you. Because I love you. I don't look at you in terms of, of a financial transaction. I look at you out of love and legacy. And I want to put you under my wing. And I want to provide for you. And I want to give you security and peace and provision that you will never find on your own. Come to me, and I will take you. I will take the church. I will be the, the groom that they need. And may we this morning, we sang about it earlier, but may we take through this week a heartbeat of joy and rejoicing to say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being the better Boaz. Thank you for showing yourself to me, even in the pages of Ruth. Thank you for redeeming us. Hey, this is Pastor Mark again, and I wanted to take a moment and just say thank you for tuning in to today's message. I hope that the message both challenged and encouraged you from the Word of God. Maybe you're listening for the first time. I want you to know that we believe the most important decision you'll ever make is the decision to know Jesus in a personal, intimate way. To find out more about that, you can visit harvestbaptist.info forward slash gospel. If you live in one of the four counties that are church borders, Allegheny, Westmoreland, Armstrong, Butler, and you don't have a church home, then we would invite you to come and to worship with us and join in the gospel work that God is doing here at Harvest Baptist Church. Maybe you're a regular listener and God's laying it on your heart to support the ministry and the outreach of Harvest. Your gift would help us reach more people more effectively with the gospel message. If you'd like to partner with us for ministry in Western Pennsylvania and around the world, you can visit harvestbaptist.info forward slash give. Again, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.